Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to High Heels and Harding. I'm your host, Kendall Ann Combs. Thank you so much for joining me today. On this episode of the show, I chat with Robin Brickell about the difference between CPTSD and PTSD. But before we get into the episode, if you haven't yet, please open whatever app you're listening to this podcast on and rate and review the show. This helps us get in the hands and the ears of people who need mental health resources. Also, if you haven't checked out the social media pages for the show, go ahead and give us a follow, especially TikTok. I'm having so much fun on TikTok. Um, But coming up next, Robin Brickell. Hey, everybody. I'm back with Robin Brickell. Hi, Robin. Hi, how are you? Nice to be here. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. So you are here today to talk about something that's extremely important. Um, I found an article that you had written and it's called, How is CPTSD Different from PTSD? And it was just so well done that I had to have you on the show so you could teach us all really the differences between the two. So Before we get into that, I just want to ask you, I mean, obviously, since the article is so well written, you must have a lot of education and a lot of experience in trauma therapy. So what drew you to the field? What kind of schooling did you go through? This is your time to brag. Tell us everything. Um, thank you. I um, started my career going to graduate school for marriage and family therapy, which is a systems approach just to excuse me, just to start with, and move through my program and found myself working with addiction. And while I was working with addiction, really realizing a little bit in my systems view and a little bit in my younger view of, right, like there's got to be some reason why people are continuously doing this that doesn't sound like it's helpful. Um, And it led me down this path of looking at trauma and what was underneath sort of what I call dissociative mechanisms, what people use to try and feel less badly or feel less at all. And it just sort of fell into my lap. And it was before trauma per se was the buzzword like it is now or trauma-informed care. So I can really look back and say, I think it, I think it chose me. I think that I was just able to see it from a systems viewpoint and it allowed me to see the bigger picture of what was going on. And since then, I took sort of my ideas, um, what I thought could be true from a systems view, and continued to gather a lot of education. I have a lot of uh, postgraduate training um, in lots of different things, including um, 
sensory motor psychotherapy, ego state psychotherapy, um, EMDR, um, TIST, which is the trauma-informed stabilization treatment, um, lots of different modalities of couples therapy, relational therapy. So I've continued on to just continue to fuel right that understanding that I have. Mm-hmm. So you know all the acronyms. I've got a lot of them. I've got a lot of them. <laughs> um, sometimes it's hard to get them out of your mouth correctly. But yes, I, I've got them. I've got a lot of them. <laughs> awesome. So I think first, um, it, it's interesting that you also touched on kind of trauma being a buzzword because we hear it a lot. So could you define it for us? Like in your purview, and especially with all of your you know vast experience, how do you define the word trauma? I I think there's sort of two ways to define it dependent upon what you're talking about. When you're talking about it from a therapeutic perspective, I actually think trauma is the residue left over from relationships or events that are left in your body, on your body, right, on the inside of you. So I think trauma could be any event, a traumatizing event could be anything to anyone that is a perceived sense of lack of safety, lack of stability that causes fear. And it's, it's the residue that's left on you. It's, it's what's left in your body. It's, it's the imprint, right? Because trauma changes your nervous system. And so that's what's left and continues to live there until there's healing. Mm-hmm. And I love it that in your article, and I had never heard it pinpointed like this, but when you say that it's when someone felt unsafe, and then you say it could have been physically, sexually, emotionally, or perceived as a threat to life or survival. I love it that you broke it out because a lot of times when we're talking about trauma, we're not talking about how Im- there could be emotional trauma. Oh, yes. Yes. And-, and and sometimes when we talk about, you know, some trauma that's maybe caused by, you know, a sexual assault, we see that more as like a physical trauma, but that's totally different than a sexual trauma. Totally different. You mean than in, um, a sexual trauma in the emotional realm? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that, right, again, that it's, the event, what happens could be anything, right? Mm-hmm. We we all kind of categorize in the big topics, some sort of abuse, um, right? Something horrible happening that's like objectively horrible. Mm-hmm. And then there's things that happen that no one sees or nobody notices, right? Like neglect, right? Like not getting the love or the attachment that you need, um, right? Or medical trauma, right? Things that can be really intense and scary for people. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> I, I had never thought, like, you're blowing my mind. I'd never even thought about medical trauma. But certainly, there are a, a thousands, millions of examples of people who've been traumatized by some kind of medical care that they've received or not received, or if they've been pressured into decisions or not making a decision either. Like, yeah, I I had never even thought of that before. Right. Or even right as a young child being in the hospital by yourself. 
right? Maybe if you don't have a parent who's staying with you all the time or things you don't understand or, right? There's so many different pieces of that. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much already and we've only been talking for like three minutes. (laughs) Okay, so we've kind of just touched a little bit on this, but can you give us some like specific examples of trauma that people experience? Because we all know like war. Right, right. So that's the right basic example of post-traumatic stress disorder, right? The soldier who goes to war. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also, right, what I call or what is called single incident trauma. So trauma that happens or an event that happens that can be traumatic, like a car accident, a fire, a weather-related issue, being mugged, right? Like, um, having COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Like things that, that go on. And then there's, um, what's called, what comes out to be chronic relational developmental trauma. So CPTSD, other than just being a mouthful, it's a really important, um, title for, right. Things that happen chronic, long-term relational between, right. A lot of times it's, it starts when you're younger and it's, um, relational with a parent, a caregiver, some some authority figure, and it's developmental. So happens over years as you develop, right? So it becomes part of who you are and how you view the world. Mm-hmm. And so, right, the chronic developmental trauma um, is, right, um, abuse, incest, neglect, domestic violence, interpersonal violence, right? Um, can be bullying, right? It can be, right? It can be so many things. There's um, there's so many different things that can be deemed trauma. And it really depends on how the event is received by the nervous system of the person that it's happening to. Got it. So you, as an outsider or someone that didn't experience the trauma, you can't say whether a person was traumatized or not because The residue, which I love that word that she said that, isn't on you, it's on the person it happened to. Right. For the most part, we regularly say, right, some element of abuse or neglect is traumatizing, right? We The bigger issues, but the issues that maybe we don't see that um, are relational trauma, attachment trauma, right? A lot of times what people refer to as little T traumas, which I have a whole other article about how much I despise that because little T traumas are the things you can't see. And for a lot of people, those are the things that are the most impactful, Mm -hmm. right? Like attachment trauma, not getting that secure attachment built as a, as a child with your parent, right? Not getting the love that you need, right? Not getting that support or feeling good enough, all of those things. So it's it's difficult for an outsider to say you were traumatized. It is easier for an outsider or a therapist to say, I see all of these things happening in your life or the symptoms that are showing up. And I wonder what they're related to and finding out that that was traumatizing events, um, situations that left that residue on them. And they continue to live with that um, until until they don't, until they heal. Yeah. So what, how are 
all traumas kind of similar? Fear, right? Oh, that perceived, yeah. right? Perceived lack of safety or stability, as I said, right? Like the feeling scared, like something scary is going to happen or is happening. It's that emotional pain. It's that for some people, it's it's going to the trauma responses of fight, flight, freeze, right? The, that Those are all similar, whether it's a single incident trauma, whether it's a chronic relational developmental trauma, et cetera. Um, it all, it all f- stirs that fear inside. Got it. So whether it was because you were in an earthquake or you were left in the hospital alone when you were a child or you're in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. or you're in a car accident or any of those things, mm-hmm. what ties them together is that either at one moment or a bunch of moments, you were fearful for some type of safety for yourself. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. I like it when people say I'm right about stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now let's, let's get into the crux of the article. So if you could tell us what is PTSD, what is CPTSD, mm-hmm. and how are they similar? How are they different? If you could sort of walk us through all of that, because honestly, I haven't heard of CPTSD until a therapist actually brought it up to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, what does the C stand for? Like, mm-hmm. it without the C was bad enough. Don't, don't put another letter on the acronym. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, right, so most people have heard of PTSD, whether it's for war, soldiers, that's the biggest time people have heard of it. And for the most part, it's, so it's right a post traumatic stress um disorder but it's post traumatic stress and it's a reaction right so something happens that makes you feel fearful right and lack of safety or security and you develop reactions from that so right it's that residue left on you um and i hate to keep saying the same thing over and over again but that's really what it what it is it can be a single incident it could be a couple of single incidents the difference for um what the c stands for is complex so complex mm-hmm. ptsd so is um that it's chronic right? It's long lasting, it's relational, it's interpersonal, it's developmental, it's over time. And so also it usually includes family members, relationships, right? Authority figures, clergy, school teachers, right? Other people who you would normally quote unquote think of as safe. And Mm. right, they both um, PTSD, PTSD and CPTSD, it's a mouthful sometimes, <laughs> um, right, can have like flashbacks, right, intrusive thoughts, you want to avoid thinking about those things, they can come with depression, shame, guilt, anxiety, hypervigilance, the difference for complex trauma which is easier to say than CPTSD, um, is, um, is that it usually shows up as also having issues with emotional regulation, your sense of self, 
your worth, the image, and relationship issues, interpersonal issues. So that's usually how it shows up later in life for people, or even at the time, right? That's what they're experiencing that makes it bigger, more intense. PT, PTSD is um, listed as a diagnosis in the DSM-5, which is the um, diagnostic manual therapists use, and CPTSD is still not, even though we as therapists wish that it was, it's listed in the international code of diagnostics. Um, So all around the world, not here in the US, um, but we wish that it would. So the only diagnosis on paper that we can give as therapists is PTSD. And that, right, sometimes just doesn't even cover the enormity of what's going on. Um, But it's the best we've got right now. Got it. So if you are, let's say, in an earthquake, Mm -hmm. that probably wouldn't have a huge impact on your relationships with, you know, romantic relationships or friend relationships or, or familiar relationships, where if you have been in a relationship or in some kind of family dynamic or whatever, where you were traumatized, that's more likely to end up in something that looks like CPTSD as opposed to PTSD. Yes. Um, So yes, for the most part, right? I can put caveats on like, if during the earthquake you were, right, it was a long period of time, you were with a family member who was experiencing something going on for them, it might give you sort of longer term. It's not as it's not as easily delineated as um, it's either this or this. Usually, though, right? Like again, it it's more complex. It's it's not just, and I don't want to even say just, but an earthquake where it's a one-time event and hopefully you are okay. You may still experience over time, right? Fears of um, tall buildings, life, life in general, right? Exactly. Tall buildings, et cetera. And that might go on in general. It may just not be relational, right? Like between other people. Um, So, right. I don't want to, again, like we said before, I can't say whether or not something is truly traumatizing to you or anybody else or how it's traumatizing. I can, I can question, I can wonder. um, I just leave that open for you to tell me, right. How, How do you experience it? Got it. Okay. So my next question that I'm thinking of is when you talk about it, sort of CPTSD, happening kind of in a developmental way? Like, do you have to be, did the trauma that that you endured have to have happened when you were a child mm-hmm. to, to like have CPTSD or could it be as an adult? It could be both. It is, oh, okay. um, it is more likely that it happens childhood through even you know, young teens, young adults. Um, I, if you, if you are an adult and you make it to adulthood and you have secure attachment and no complex trauma in your life, the likelihood that you're going to develop that later on in life 
is probably slimmer because mm-hmm. even right, even those people who who get them um, find themselves in relationships, marriages that are are violent or have interpersonal violence, and that is chronic and relational. It's likely not developmental. So if there's secure attachment underneath there, then those people probably get out of that scenario faster, right? Mm-hmm. They have support systems. They already know from the baseline that relationships don't exist like this. Mm-hmm. And so they hopefully have, right, the the self-compassion and the self-worth to be able to know that and and get out sooner Mm -hmm. um, because they've had experiences of relationships being more secure, being healthier, right? So that's that's where it it becomes more difficult to... Gotcha. And I can see how those things can kind of like compound upon each other, right? To add up, like if you felt neglected as as a child then that just kind of snowballs in if you're in one of those relationships as an adult. Yes, absolutely, right? You are unfortunately more vulnerable until you've done healing or repair work on that for yourself because when you grow up, feeling like trauma or neglect or, right, is is normal, quote unquote, right? Like that's how relationships exist. Then those are your expectations Mm -hmm. versus if you grow up in a scenario where you right believe that you deserve to be attended to and supported and right and and held in emotional space that is safe then you continue to require that the rest of your life absolutely yeah absolutely so that that was sort of right into like why is healing from CPTSD, <laughs> more difficult. Complex trauma. <laughs> okay, complex trauma. Why is why is healing from complex trauma uh-huh. uh, more difficult than healing from single incident trauma? There you go. <laughs> um, for all the things that we've been talking about, right? So, for single incident trauma, for PTSD people may have come from secure attachment, this foundation where, right, issues resolve. Even two soldiers go to war, they they see the exact same thing. One comes from a family with secure attachment and one doesn't. The likelihood and the research shows us that the one who came from secure attachment resolves that issue more quickly. So that's what I mean also by like the residue. It's not just the specific event. Two people can see the same event and experience it differently, mm-hmm. right? What happens when you experience what happens? How do you feel? How does it leave you, right? And that's the fear piece. So when you're healing from it, if if you've got complex, relational, chronic trauma, right? You don't have a you don't have much of a basis to even start with. We've got to start by building that foundation first and then can get to the pieces of the events that happened and how they left you feeling versus when you have maybe a single incident trauma, you maybe already have that basis there. So it really depends on 
whether you have that foundation, right? Because all trauma survivors are resilient. They are the strongest people I know, right? They survive everything and are amazing. And I regularly say they only show up in my office when their survival skills, their coping skills stop working, Mm -hmm. right? So when they're not working in their current day life, right? And so healing healing can take longer when you don't have that foundation to pull from. Mm -hmm. Got it. And I love in your article that like, you really go through these these five steps um, about for, about healing from complex trauma, <laughs> and I was I was hoping that we, that we could kind of discuss them. Okay, what you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I I love this first one. Like, I when I thought that I was like, oh my gosh, this would be such an obstacle for some people. Thankfully, I was all right with this one, but. This one would be such an obstacle about noticing the need and reaching out for that initial moment of help and believing that help is available and deserved. That that got me right in the feels because I was like thinking there's probably some people who, like we're saying, they don't believe that there's help available, number one. And number two, they might not believe they deserve the help. Yes. And right. When, when you experience complex trauma, for sure. Right. You maybe develop in an environment where you're just trying to survive every day. Mm -hmm. So help is not available. Right. Especially if your abusers or perpetrators or family members are the people who are supposed to take care of you. You learn, how do I trust when the people who are supposed to take care of me don't? Right. And and most children particularly start with, right, I must have done something wrong, let alone if a perpetrator or an abuser tells you you have done something wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to build that feeling of deserving help. So the first piece is right when when trauma survivors, like I said, show up in my office, their their coping skills or survival skills aren't working anymore. A lot of them. Right have been through so much and they finally show up in therapy because they don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, go try this. Right. And so it may not always be the um, belief that I deserve this help. It's just, it might be even just desperation. Right. I I need something. Right. Got it. To get through. Yeah. And I, I remember one time hearing, like a lot of these um, strategies and coping mechanisms that those of us who have experienced trauma have, like we we try to apply them when we're out of the trauma and like they don't work. And then we're like, well, why doesn't this work? Because mm-hmm. it suited us so well to survive the trauma. So that's like a whole thing that you sort of have to dig into about mm-hmm. like not judging yourself for still trying to use the thing that used to save you. Yes, really, we want to thank that thing, or I would say part of you that Mm -hmm. took care of you, right? That found a way that developed this amazing skill to dissociate, right? Or use something to dissociate so that you didn't have to 
feel what was going on. And as you described it, right, as as life changes and you find yourself in different scenarios, maybe scenarios that are safer, mm -hmm. or you grow up and you're an adult and you are no longer reliant upon or trapped, right? You have more options. Yeah. yeah. But sometimes people live as if they don't, right? Yeah. For a long while, because it works so well for so many years. So this second one, I think this is vital and and I, I need you to kind of help us about how to do it. So the second one is finding a trauma-informed therapist to build a therapeutic relationship. So can you tell us how do we identify someone who is trauma-informed and not someone who just on psychology today, along with the thousands of other things they list, list trauma? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, one of which is, you know, I always recommend that people start with talking to people they know to find therapists, right? Has anyone had a good experience with a therapist? And talking to them, reading about them, right? Really trying to to gain, are they just using the word trauma as a specialty because it was a box check or do they really understand it? And trauma-informed care is care that in my belief, everyone should have, yeah. um, whether you have experienced trauma or right, feel like you've experienced trauma, et cetera, right? Like I think that everyone should have it because it's a basis in safety, right? It's safety first. So finding a trauma-informed therapist, even if you don't think you have trauma, I think is important. Finding one and talking to them and asking, noticing, are they using words like safety, like stabilization, like pacing, compassion, right? Ooh. Going slow, right? Um, Strengths-based, right? So trauma-informed therapists understand that pathologizing, right, diagnosing is really sometimes not helpful. And right, there's a reason for what ha what you're doing, right? It's that trauma-informed therapists believe it's not what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you, mm -hmm. right? Um, that the book title that Oprah has made famous with um she and Bruce Perry, right? What happened to you? That's what therapists have been saying. Trauma-informed therapists have been saying for decades, um, right? Like what, what happened to them? Why are they doing X, Y, Z, right? Like back to where I started my career, right? Why? What is making these people use so many substances that's making them, right, have so much other pain, right? There must be something else going on. So, Right, really understanding that those are the the languages that trauma informed therapists are strengths based. They take into account your history, your gender, your culture, right, and and really work first and foremost for safety in the relationship. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a family doctor who really helped me one time, and he was like, "Kendall, I, I had just moved," and he said, "Kendall, and when you like call a therapist's office." You can say, do you have experience working with, and then you can name maybe something that you need help with. Like for me, when I've moved and I found a, a you know a therapist practice that I, I, I would like to try, I say, 
hey, do you have anyone there who has a lot of experience with working with survivors of domestic violence? Right. And I don't know why this amazed me because like if if therapists are in this job, it's not because you guys are like millionaires, right? <laughs> you really <laughs> want to help people. Like at first I thought that like they would lie and be like, oh yeah, you know, Greg does that. Dr. Greg does that. And I would see Dr. Greg and he would have no idea what he was talking about. Instead, when I called practices, they were seriously like, hey, you know what? We don't really have anybody who specializes in that, but so-and-so at this practice does. And so that was such an aha moment for me as like in the world of therapy, like you guys really want to help us. And it's okay for us to ask specific questions because you would rather us sit across from you and you help us than you not be able to help us. Yes, very much, (laughs) very much so. And you deserve to be able to ask that question and get an answer, right? Mm -hmm. And to be able to know that this person has experience, right? Has education, has understanding of what you're looking for. Now, right, some clients know what they're looking for. Some clients don't. I think it's it's important to ask for what for what you need. And mm-hmm. even if you start therapy and you don't feel like you're getting what you need, I think clients are able to ask, right? I, I want people to say to me, this is working for me. This isn't working for me, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it makes it more useful, more helpful, therapists are not mind readers. We, we, we can observe and we can experience, but we're really only as good as the information you give us. And so if we're confused or we don't have the whole picture, then that does make it more difficult. Right. And I think that the majority of therapists out there are out there because we love what we do, right. The goal is, is helping and healing and, and, and that gives back to us. Yeah. Okay. So the third one, oh, again, so good. Building a foundation in therapy of stability and security to learn how to navigate life in general in the present day. So tell us why we kind of touched on it, but why is it important that it's grounded in the present day and not necessarily in the previous experiences because right if you are if you're grounded in the present day you can see what's going on for you at this current moment versus right what survival skills or tools you needed to use back then right that you are an adult now that you have options that you can ask these questions being grounded in the present day means you're not living in a flashback right? You're not living in that feeling because what happens for trauma survivors is something triggers that feeling inside them and they feel like they are living in the trauma at this current moment, right? I might be sitting here, you know, safely in my office and something triggers me and I'm five again, Mm -hmm. right? And so getting in the present day grounded, right? Having both feet on the floor, noticing what's around you and what's going on allows you to notice, oh, wait, that's a flashback. I'm triggered Mm -hmm. versus that's happening for me right now. 
Yeah. And that goes into number four, which is noticing the insecure, anxious, or confusing feelings that can happen in relationships. And you pay attention to if those feelings are current or old and are they familiar? Yes. Right. So I think that that's, it's so important to notice is what you're worried about going on in this relationship right here, right now. Right. Mm -hmm. I think so many people can relate to, um, seeing the look on somebody's face and interpreting it somehow, some way, or a tone that you hear going through your filter. And um, that in and of itself, right, if you're not grounded, at least also in the present day to notice, oh, wait, this person loves me. This person is safe. This person is not the same person who hurt me in the past right? Mm -hmm. That the feeling is familiar. So what happens for a flashback is um, internally in the brain, there's something called the amygdala. It's uh, like the smoke alarm of the brain, right? Oh my God. I love that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And when you have trauma regularly and the smoke alarm is going off a lot, right? A lot of times the smoke alarm just doesn't have a shut off anymore, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's continuing to feel like trauma is going on. And when I say trauma is going on, that means, right, I'm living in this state of fear, right? Like what's going to happen next? When's the next shoe going to drop, right? What What's happening that that is is going to be scary for me and trying to stay one step ahead of that. And when the amygdala is going off regularly, mm-hmm. it's hard to notice what's happening in the present. So if you can be in the present, you can notice, oh, right. Is that the old smoke alarm or is that the current one? Gotcha. And I think that that's really important. I I identify with that because I I get very activated at um, loud, unexpected noises. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely know it's because when I left my abuser, I did not know that when you're leaving your abusers, when they're most likely to kill you. And um, there was a a long drawn out physical fight that happened when I was leaving. And before the fight happened, he picked up an office chair and threw it onto my desk. And it made the loudest noise that, Mm -hmm. and and I know that you understand this, it like reverberated off all the walls. Mm -hmm. So when I hear a loud unexpected noise like that, absolutely my amygdala is like oh girl like and and i i totally understand what you mean about like is this a current feeling or an old feeling because mm-hmm. to me it's it's current and old you know <laughs> mm-hmm. it's right there with me and when i worked with therapists who who helped me to ground mm-hmm. during those times like that's so important when you're dealing with trauma mm-hmm. is because that amygdala that thing is powerful. And sometimes it just takes a little reworking to, to get it to work in, in your favor for what is current. Yes. And I'm sorry for your experiences, right? Oh, that yeah. That's how hard they are. And that is exactly a perfect example, right? Of loud noises triggering, right? That feeling inside of you that there's danger happening. And you go there first, right? And the work of of trauma healing is to slow that down, 
or to notice, right, eventually that, oh, right, I went there and I'm looking around the room and I'm noticing what's going on for me right now, right? That's the fight, flight, freeze that happened when you, right, when you get scared, when you get fearful. And, and when that happens enough, right, it gets triggered regularly, mm-hmm. right? That, those loud noises that just make you startle or jump. Yeah. And I think that's something that I really had to to learn was that like that my body will respond like that from my amygdala, whether I, I can't think my way out of it, right? Like my body's just gonna do it. I sweat, mm-hmm. I can hear like my heart is like bop, 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 and my face gets all red. Like that is my body that it, it's been trained to be like, all right, you gotta fight, Kendallant. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't like uh, shame myself for that anymore. I say, oh, that's what my body was trained to do. But I I can, you know, bring myself down way faster than I used to be able to. (laughs) But that's kind of part of the process of of going through trauma recovery. Absolutely. And and developing that compassion, right? So not only not shaming yourself, but having Mm -hmm. compassion for the idea that it makes sense that my body does this so quickly because of all that I experienced and, and my body, right. My abilities, my brain really worked so hard to keep me safe. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they're still doing when they're triggered, right? The amygdala is still trying to keep you safe. It's a warning signal, danger, right? What can you do differently? The issue is, is right. Whether or not the warning signal, right, is for danger now or just familiarity from danger in the past. Got and, it. Yeah, it just, it, right, really, it makes sense. And it's part of those amazing survival skills that trauma survivors have because you can't really turn that off as much. You can turn it down. You can turn the dial down. And I regularly say, if some disaster is going to happen in the world, I sure hope I'm at work with some of my clients because <laughs> they are amazing with their survival skills, right? Yeah, They have survived more than anyone should. Yeah. So the, the fifth one you have, and again, this is, this is a tough one, but it's so important. So repairing the relational responses in present day to develop a secure attachment and to be able to trust others who are safe and find emotional well-being. Right. So think about the fact that trauma survivors have lived their life, right? Not trusting because it made sense not to trust because people were not trustworthy in their life. And then you meet this therapist who's consistent, who, right, it does what they say they're going to do, right? They they say the same things. They don't change their mind without reason, right? It's it's consistent and they're not dangerous. But it's it's still difficult sometimes, right, for clients to believe that to be true, right? That, you know, I have um, had a client in the past who once said to me, you know, Robin, I, I, I trust you like 97%. <laughs> I was like, that's pretty darn awesome. Yeah. Right? Like given, given their trauma history, I think that it's important to recognize that when you're basically taught, right, it's part of your nurture to 
not trust because people aren't doing what they say they're going to do, or they're doing something wrong, or they're doing something hurtful or harmful to you. And then all of a sudden you're just supposed to trust people. Well, why? Right. If if a parent who is supposed to keep you safe doesn't, why would I trust the stranger I see, you know, less than an hour a week? Yeah. Right. It's it really is difficult. And so it takes time. That's part of of trauma therapy is that that first stage is safety and stabilization building. And that's sometimes the longest period of therapy because it's building that that trust, that safety, that emotionally corrective relationship that therapy can provide to be able to teach you how to trust again, right? And then to be able to hopefully take that outside of the therapy room into other relationships. That's a great point. So if you're working on recovering from trauma, maybe like a little step you can take is to just open the door of trust a little bit to your therapist. And then you can build on, if you feel like you're not ready to trust the people in your life, that's fine. You'll, we might get there. We'll probably get there. But a good place to start is with a therapist who can kind of help you with that stabilization and getting that foundation. Right. So once, as long as it's a trauma-informed therapist and they have earned your trust, right? They develop that relationship, you know, it takes, it could take months, years for clients to trust, to get to that 97%, that right, years of, of hard work and consistency. So having compassion for the fact that this is, that lack of trust is actually a very protective part of trauma survivors, right? Because they don't want to get hurt again. Yeah. And so it's, it just takes time. I think it's important to say, right, I might start working on this with my therapist and I know that it's going to take some time to get there. Mm-hmm. So, but, but if you need to start off your relationship with your therapist complaining about Janet in accounting, that's all right. you can start there and build your way up. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, um, another thing that I had just I just found in your article that was so interesting because I had never seen it before was that you talk about that I've only heard like hyper arousal as kind of a side effect of having PTSD or complex trauma, mm-hmm. but it, it just, and it was just one little phrase of your article. It said hyper arousal or hypo arousal. And I was like, oh my God, I have never, and all of the stuff I've read, I've never seen that included. And that is so important. So can you just kind of touch on like why someone who's experienced trauma might experience actually hypo arousal instead of hyper arousal? Yes. Um, So again, right, like the trauma changes your nervous system. And a lot of people go to hyper, right? It looks like anxious. It looks like, right, looking around the corner, always sitting with your back to the wall, right? Really hyper vigilant. Mm -hmm. Some people go to hypo arousal, which is sort of um, your freeze response, maybe, right? Numb, flat, disconnected, right? People who maybe use sleep to avoid dealing with their trauma, right? People who who go to sort of depressed, flat affect because 
right? That's nothing is going to bring them into that energy of more because that's scary, Mm -hmm. right? So hypervigilant looks like anxiety a lot of times, right? Mm -hmm. Looks like a lot of energy, a lot of noticing. Hypo looks a lot like depression, right? It looks a lot like flatness. The people who might um, sleep a lot, play video games, escape into something. Um, and, and it happens. And a lot of trauma survivors do either hyper or hypo and go back and forth, but they, I call like skip the middle in the middle of this <laughs> yeah. window of tolerance. That's the scary, the middle is a scary part. Right. That's where you can think and feel at the same Uh time. So you're feeling and you know you're in the present tense and you can manage things and emotionally regulate. And most trauma survivors do hyper or hypo or both. Mm-hmm. right? Like it's not one or the other. Um, but, and nobody really talks about hypo so mm-hmm. much. Um, it is, it's a very dissociative kind of space, right? It's, I'm just blank. I'm not here. Yeah. Well, I'm going to link this article in the show notes, because I think that this is so important for everyone to read, because we kind of, we haven't really seen a lot about, you know, CPTSD, and about how important it is to really address it and that it, it is it is different from PTSD and, and they're just different things that we have to incorporate and think about when we're recovering from that. So I'm going to link to the show. That'll be a link in there in the show notes and a link to how to get in touch with you in case anyone has any particular questions because you are just so fabulous and you're going to have to come back on to talk about little T trauma. or attachment trauma attachment trauma yeah so that that's fair i am happy to talk i'm happy to come back and talk to you again that would be great thank you wonderful well thanks so much for being on thank you bye-bye Robin Burkell for being on the show and teaching us all about the difference between CPTSD and PTSD. If you'd like to follow um, Robin on her social media or check out her website, I have links to all of those things in the show notes. If you are in an unsafe or unhealthy relationship, there is free help available. Please dial the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 1- Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.